This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 95, verses 1 through 11. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is God's word. We're beginning a new series today, uh, and the series is really called The Idols of Our Hearts. The Idols of Our Hearts. In ancient times, if you wanted prosperity in your business, if you wanted to get married, if you wanted to have children, if you wanted to have a good harvest, which was really the culture of the day in business, you made a sacrifice. You went to the temple, you made a sacrifice to idols. These idols were made of stone or of gold or silver. Today, these idols are in our hearts because we still value beauty. We still value uh, money in an inordinate way. And uh, an idol as a result is anything that you value more than God in any given moment in your life. It's something that you worship. And as a result, we're going to kick off this series with a passage about worship. It's actually one of the most famous passages in the Bible about worship. For centuries, a church looked at Psalm 95 to learn everything that we need to learn about or everything we need to know about worship. You know, ever since the French Revolution, <clears throat> you know, it's the p- philosophical period known as the Enlightenment Age, um, people have backed away from religion. They said, we don't need religion. Religion is backwards. Religion is primitive. Uh, all that we have is really in the here and now. You see that today again, this resurgence of, uh, y- you know, you only live once. The world is all there is, and as a result, everything is explainable. And what's happened, at least all the philosophers and the social scholars, all of them today say the world, because of this mentality, has become plastic. It's become material. It's become fake. There's this lack of depth and hope in our lives. Recently, there's been a resurgence of people coming back to the church. And the reason is because that original assertion that everything is explainable with empirical knowledge. Everything is explainable with science and facts. It's got flaws. Because people have come to realize that there is no true empirical explanation. There's no true empirical solution to the problem of racism, to the problem of poverty, to the problem of education in our world today. And it's, a, you know, facts, actually, for, the, for most of the important things in our lives, empirical data only gets you so far. The most of the important areas of our lives, uh, finding the right career path, getting married, finding the right spouse, it only gets you to a certain point. Facts, empirical data, it's insufficient. And the Bible says the reason is because we live, although we live in a very physical material world, we're made of physical material bodies, we're also made of the eternal. 
we need to worship. Worship is of utmost significance and criticality in our lives. What does this passage teach us? Three things. One, what worship is. Two, why do we need to worship? Lastly, how do you worship? What it is, why do we do it, how do we do it? What it is, why we do it, how do we do it? First, what, do we, what it is. What is worship? Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that engages your entire being. There are three calls in this text. Kind of walk with me here. Verses 1 and 2, you see the words, sing, joy, shout aloud, with thanksgiving, extol. There's music, there's songs. In other words, worship is an emotional, there's an emotional component to worship. You worship with your emotions. But in verse 6, what do you see? Come, approach, kneel, bow down. This is the language of posture. This is the language of actions. This is the language of approach. There's the will involved. But then you see in verse 7, here, the writer appeals to history. Meribah, Massa. This is the language of reason, thinking. He says, here, I want you to remember. I want you to process. I want you to accept. I want you to understand. So you have the language of emotions. You have the language of the will. You have the language of the mind. Very important here in verse 2, the writer says, with all that in mind, your whole will, your whole set of emotions, your emotional soul, your, your mind, your whole person integrated together. In verse 2, he says, come before him. Literally, in, in the Hebrew, in the ancient Hebrew, it, it says, literally, come before his face. Come before his presence. The psalmist here is not telling us to follow some sort of ceremony or ritual. Because if you're following some sort of ritual, if you're just following some sort of ceremony, there will be no singing. There will be no joy. You wouldn't be shouting aloud. You wouldn't be exuberant like that. There wouldn't be any thanksgiving. What's got this psalmist so riled up? A ritual? Definitely not a ritual. The psalmist has come in. He's got access. He says, come before him. Come before his face. There's this thrill of this relationship, this access that he's got with God. The psalmist has found intimacy with a deep, holy God. And what that means, it's what he means when he says, come before his face. Think about this. When you come to know somebody in a very deep way, when that person has let you all the way in, there's this experience that you have, there's this moment in a relationship where you know this person is letting you in. At that moment, you know it's something very, very sacred. It's something very, very special. Incredibly special, incredibly sacred. And it's something that doesn't just happen because you know more about this person. It has nothing to do with the knowledge of this person. The other day, I was at the Philadelphia Art Museum and uh, one of the things I learned as you're walking through the art museum is that you can tell the difference based on different works over the course of time in a person's life, in an artist's life, over a, period, over a period in this person's life. You can tell if the artist was sad. You can tell if the artist was angry. You can tell what place this artist was in. When this person is coming on to their own, you get a sense of that. You can do all those things. You can listen to a song from an artist over a given period of time and kind of know where, what place that artist was, where that writer was at that given point in time. You feel this connection with this artist. You can do all those things and still not really know this person. 
The psalmist is not saying, you know, I look out there and I see the beauty of, of this artist. I see God's handiwork. I see his artwork. And I feel so close to him that I'm exploding in joy. That's not what he says. He says, come before his face. I want you to know and be intimate with God. I want you to come and be intimate with a God that knows everything about you totally and has let you in totally, has opened, has chosen to open himself before you. That's access. When you let someone in your life in a way that's fulfilling to you and that person, that's access. We all friends like that. People in your life that you've let in and have let you in. It's a very special thing. It's, it's fulfilling. Imagine opening yourself up to somebody. You're pouring your heart out to this person, and that person just kind of sits there and gives you no response, doesn't respond in any way. In fact, kind of smirks at you or something like that, or you know, they change the subject in front of you. The person has really not responded from their heart. You feel used. You feel like closing up. If the person responds to you, there's this connection. There's this deep connection. Access. An access that motivates you. The psalmist is exhilarated by the access that he has with God. He says, enter his gates, enter his courts with praise, with thanksgiving. He's got joy. There's this deep, powerful joy in his life. He's knows, he knows God at this deep personal level. Now, what is he worshiping? The psalmist wants us to remember the objective reality the objective truth about God. Verses 3 to 7, if you walk with me through these verses, what's the psalmist verse, what's he doing here? He's taking an inventory. Verses 3 to 7, he's taking an inventory of the greatness of God. First, God is a creator. He's the great king above all gods, he says. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he has made it. His hands form the dry land. That's what he says. God is a creator, but verse 6, he says, you must submit. You must kneel before God. Why? Verse 7, because he is our God. Actually, what he says is, he is our God. We are his people. We are his flock. Yes, he's creator. Yes, he's a king. Yes, he's a God. But we are his. We belong to him. He's saying, all that I've inventoried about the greatness of God, he is powerful, he is a creator, but he is trustworthy, he is caring, he is leading, he is good. That's what he says about him. That's why I'm bursting with joy and thanksgiving. In other words, this psalmist, he's not all hyped up because of the music. There is music. There's lots of music. He calls people to music. He says, I want there to be singing. I want there to be music. But he's not all hyped up by the music. He's looking at the decor. He's not all hyped up by the decor. He's looking at the solemnity of the experience, the sacredness of this experience, but he's not all hyped up by that. He doesn't just see God as this concept in his life, this thing that, you know, right about now, I, I think around this stage of my life, I need to come into this understanding. That's not what he's doing. He's not sitting in a crowd and he says, he's all riled up because the crowd is all riled up. That's not what he's doing. He says, think. I want you to understand. Think this out, he says. Reason this out, he says. God is a creator God. We are in his hands. He holds the world in his hands. He is the redeemer. He is the lover. He is the shepherd of our souls. We are his. Now, he says, now I get it. I've been looking at God and the attributes of God and the beauty of God and the kingliness of God 
And he says, now I see the worth of who God is. I get it. Now I see the value of God. How does he demonstrate it? How does he demonstrate it? He gives him his song. He gives him his heart. He gives him his praise. He gives him his whole life. Worship is the act of reorienting the whole of who you are around something that is of ultimate value in your life. The psalmist is looking at the infinite glory of God and it gives him pleasure. He says, this is remarkable. Just looking at God is remarkable, but he has let me in to the beauty of who he is. He has let me into the whole of himself. I'm reflecting on the beauty of God, the character of God, the work of God, the works of his hands, the work of what, who he is in our life. He is our shepherd. We are the flock in his care. I know I am his, and it's become personal, so personal, it just blows me away. It just overwhelms me. That objective truth, God is creator, God is king, has become a reality, a subjective reality in my life. It's become personal. A subjective reality that shapes my life. In verse 6, he says, I must bow. We must kneel. In other words, I must obey. Now that kingliness of God has come into my life because he's let me into his life. It's not enough just to sing or to feel good about God. I must be shaped by this. In fact, the very word worship comes from the Latin word worth-ship, the act of describing worth to something, something that is of utmost value and importance. Back in the day, I used to collect a ton of baseball cards. I'm a huge baseball fan. And, uh, you know, you collect baseball cards over the years. They become very special to you. You hold them in this, I still have them in this box. I keep it in my closet. And in there you have baseball cards. Let's say somebody's given you a set of baseball cards handed down over the years. Some of them, you open up this box. Some of them are in plastic sleeves. They have these little plastic sleeves. You fit these baseball cards in. Some of them are in these plastic mounts. You screw these mounts together because you want to preserve the worth and the value of this thing. You take it to an appraiser. I used to do this when I was a child, younger, because he had these awesome baseball cards. Um, you value these things. You, sometimes you kind of just look at it, and you kind of look at the, the statistics. I used to memorize the statistics of all the baseball players that I valued, down to the year, down to what they led, down to you know, how good they were in a given period of time. You still remember these things over the years. Let's say someone gives you baseball cards that have been handed down. This is going to go over some of your heads. But you take it to an appraiser. And the appraiser is looking through these cards. And an appraiser will look at it, kind of look at the condition of the card, the age of the card, the value of the player over the course of all of history. There are guides that kind of set standards and measures. He kind of knows what the last baseball card of this quality has been sold at. And he'll sit there and he'll tell you. You know, he looks at you and he says, okay, well, you have uh, Willie Mays, probably the greatest player in his era. Willie Mays, this card is worth this many hundreds of dollars, hundreds of dollars. You look at Jackie Robinson, probably the greatest baseball player in his era. He'll say, yes, this card is worth hundreds of dollars, sometimes, in some cases, $1,000 for Jackie Robinson. You look at Ken Griffey Jr., you know, his rookie card. I have tons of Ken Griffey Jr. rookie cards. I was in the peak of my high school period of collecting cards at the time. And probably the greatest player in his era with all the steroid allegations and all that, never once alleged that he had taken steroids. Not once, not one not one accusation. And the guy's one of the few people who's hit over 600 home runs. You look at that and you'll say, wow, this is worth probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a couple hundred dollars. And then all of a sudden he finds this card sitting there. It's not in a sleeve because it's too old, not in a mount, and he just almost kind of, 
He says, no way. Can it be? Can this be it? And all of a sudden, he kind of looks at it. He looks at the back of the card, the condition of the card, and he starts to kind of wait to catch his breath. He says, do you know what this is? And you say, well, that's some old card that was given to me, handed down to me. He says, this is the 1909 Honus Wagner. There are only a few of these out there. They used to find them in these American tobacco company cans of tobacco that you would buy. You open it up, and they would be baseball cards. This is the Honus Wagner in 1909. You can tell by, by the, the gradient of the front, it's not a replica. You can tell this is authentic. Well, I mean, I've got tons of cards. I mean, the, the Willie Mays, best baseball player in his era. He said it's worth hundreds of dollars. How much is this worth? I've never even heard of this guy. Most of us here have never, never heard of Honus Wagner. He says this card, the last time this card traded hands was about four years ago. It sold for $3 million. $3 million. Say $3 million? He says, actually, today you can sell this for over $3 million. But why would you want to? You've got to hold on to this thing. All of a sudden, that Willie Mays baseball card is less valuable to you. You start to unscrew the screws and you slide that Honus Wagner in there, right? You start to take, some, you know, musical chairs, right? Now you start to take the other plastic sleeves out and you put the Willie Mays in there. It's worth less to you. You buy a safe. to put this card in. You bolt that safe to your floor because ain't no one going to take this safe away from you because of what's in that safe. This card is worth more than, forget about any baseball card you have. It's worth, you take your house, you take your cars, you take all your jewelry, you take all your baseball cards, you take all your best furniture, you take all the best artwork that's hanging in your homes, You take the sum of all those things, put together all your investments, all your securities, it still pales in comparison to that one card, to that one card. You're never going to look at that card. It was sitting in a shoebox at the top of your closet. There are other things that have been kept better than that shoebox. All of a sudden, you don't look at that card the same anymore. You're still like, this card? You don't look at that card. In fact, that card shapes the way you live. Think about it. Now you're thinking, $3 million. If I were to retire today, cash this card in. In fact, I would do that. I would just cash that card in, right? You'd say, I would do this with this money. I would do this with that money. I would go here. I would see this. I could get this kind of rest. I could rest for the rest of my life. I don't have to work a day in my life. I would put this much away. I would do all this with $3 million. That's what I would do. It would shape your life. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value because you've discovered true worth, deeper worth, eternal worth, lasting worth, something more valuable than the sum of all your possessions, all your friends, your spouse, your children, everything that you've got. What do you do? Verse 1, the moment you realize what you've got, you're moved emotionally. Verse 6, you never forget how much the, the care this thing deserves. So you start to treat it differently. It starts to shape your actions. What do you do? Verse 7, your mind is changed. 
your perspective on life all of a sudden changes. All of a sudden, you start to think about all the things you can do, all the things that you're empowered to be and do. It starts to shape your thinking. Everything in your life changes. When you start to see the impact of that, having this great wealth, this great important thing in your life, you start to think, now I can do this, now I can do that. You start to view life. Everything changes. Why? Because the objective reality of the worth of something starts to shape your subjective life. That's worship. I'm going to bring this home for us a little bit. If you're worried today, you come into church, I worry a lot about a lot of things. It's just one of those things built into my, uh, it's a sin pattern that's built into my life. You're worried about a lot of things. You come to church, you're still worried about something, and you hear the music, and you hear some good words, and you meet some good people. You may, for the moment, feel a little bit better. But after a while, you know, your worries haven't changed. Your circumstances haven't changed one bit. And so you're just as worried as you were before. That's not worship. That's not worship. But if the objective truth of who God is takes hold of you and you start to say, now I get who he is, the Holy Spirit has come in and takes something that you've heard over years and maybe decades of your life and all of a sudden somehow in a special way kind of comes in, enters into your life and opens your heart to see this incredible truth now you get it. Now it's taken hold. I've forgotten how great God is. I've forgotten how beautiful God is. I forgot how wise God is. I forgot how trustworthy God is. Now I'm going to remember. Now I can see this. Now I can do this. Now life starts to shape, take a different type of shape in my life. Because God has got the highest worth in my life. It shapes everything. Let the greatness of God power you. Let the power of God let the tenderness of God, let the wisdom of God shape your life. You're going to sense his presence. Enter his gates. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Bow before him. Kneel before him. What does it mean to bow? What does it mean to kneel? What it means is you're going to surrender. You're going to give in. It's a posture of surrender. You're saying, I'm, I'm not going to put conditions in front of you anymore. I'm not going to put excuses in front of you anymore. I'm not going to put blame, blaming other things or circumstances in my life anymore. I'm not going to negotiate with you anymore. I'm not just coming to you to get things from you anymore. I want you. I want more of you. I know that I'm yours, and I want you to be mine. That's worship. That is worship. Here's the hardest part about worship. Let's say you've discovered a lack of intimacy in your life come to church, things just feel cold. Things just don't feel good. You're not really feeling it anymore. Happens in our lives. It happens to me in my life. It must happen to you in your life. Right? So what happens is you come to God and, and you're, you're searching. The problem is today, most people are skeptical of, church, they're skeptical of church leaders. And they're always looking for what they can get out of church. What they can get out of God. That's what really they're looking for. And, and uh, so when you come to God and you come to church and you're skeptical of the leaders and you're really, today, our culture today, we're much more consumer-oriented, even in our churches. So you come to God, you come to church, you really don't want to commit to anything. And imagine, think about this, you're, you're judging your leaders, you're looking for what you can get out of them, right? Um, what you're really doing is you're saying, you're coming to God and you're saying, I want the thrill of being in a relationship with you, but I don't really want a relationship. I want the thrill of being in a relationship with you, but I don't want the commitment of being in a relationship with you. Imagine you're dating somebody. You go to this person. They, say, they come to you and they say, you know what? I want to have sex with you. I want to see you naked. I want, to, I want you in bed with me, but I don't want to get, I don't want to marry you. I don't want to be intimate with you 
in that way. I don't want to commit to you because that's, that's too much risk right now. I'm not really ready for that. But I do want to have sex with you. It gives me thrill. It gives me a sense of pleasure. It gives you a sense of pleasure. What would you say? What would you say to that person? You'd say that's not a relationship. It's not a real relationship. Because in a real relationship, there's risk involved. The very nature of just opening your life up to somebody, there's risk involved because they could reject you, right? The very nature of a relationship, the intimacy, there's risk. Uh, You're going to give up some independence in your life because now you're tying your life into that person's life. You're tying, uh, you know, you're tying your, your happiness with that person's happiness. That person has a bad life, is sad, you become sad. There's risk. There's burden there. And so uh, it's, it's not a real relationship when you just want the thrill and you're just living for the thrill. The thing is, we don't like that. We, we don't like giving up independence. We don't like uh, opening ourselves up to risk, our weaknesses, our flaws. We don't like doing that. We don't like the scrutiny in our lives. We don't want people speaking into our lives because they know what's going on in our lives. And as a result, today, really when we come to church, we just want to date God. We just want to have sex with God. We just want to hook up with God. We don't want to be married to God. And yet God, knowing this, calls you his bride. That's the reason why there's emptiness in our lives. You ever have a relationship where it's very physical, but there's no other real commitment There's no long-lasting commitment that says to the death, the vow isn't there. It's not sealed before witnesses. That's called marriage. That's what marriage is. That's why we get married. You know, there's a seal. There's a signature. There are witnesses who says, I've seen you do this. You've got to hold to this. We don't do that today. We don't like that. Then we have these empty relationships in our lives, these inorganic relationships in our lives. When you live a life like that with God, you won't ever fully experience what it means to be hidden in Christ, to be embraced by the Father until a commitment has been made. You think, oh, I'll commit later. First, the thrill. Commit, the thrill doesn't happen without the commitment. The thrill of marriage doesn't happen without the commitment of marriage first. It doesn't happen. You got all, I got all these doubts. I'm not sure. How do I really know this person is the one? How do I really know that God is real in my life? You got to commit. It doesn't become complete until you commit. Worship is to say, I'm coming to realize you are my worth. And I'm giving in. I'm surrendering. That's the longest point of this sermon. What it is. Worship. You are my worth. I surrender. Second thing is why. The second point is why. Why do we worship? The reason is very clear. Scripture is very clear about this. It's because if you're not worshiping God, you're already worshiping something else. Everybody here right now is ascribing ultimate value to something in their lives that's going to increase their options, increase their potential, increase their freedom, increase their joy, increase their power. And if it's not God, it's something else. It's something else. Why does the psalmist say, why does the psalmist say we should worship God? Verse 3, he says, the Lord is the great God, the king above all gods. He doesn't say, yeah, you know, there's no such thing as other gods in our lives. He knows that money is a god. 
He knows that beauty is a God. He knows that relationships and intimacy is a God. He's saying God, our Lord, is the great king above all these other gods. He's ascribing ultimate worth and value to something, to God himself. He's saying the very essence of worship is to recognize we are first worshiping something else. We're already worshiping something else as our king. How do you know that you're worshiping something else apart from God? When you tell yourself, if I just have this, then, and everything else becomes negotiable in my life, that thing is God. Here's this person. Before they were dating, tons of friends, lots of friends, right? Friends with everybody, always hanging out. They're organizing uh, friend get-togethers. As soon as they start dating, among those friends, they meet one person that becomes their special friend, right? Then they start spending more and more time with them, and after a while, they say, you know what? All I want is you. All I need is you. All I, all I, you're the only thing that makes me happy. And so the relationships with everybody else become negotiable. What, do you, what is that person doing? That person, in a sense, is worshiping that one relationship. That's what's happening. That thing is your real God. When you say, I have this thing in my life, it's the only thing that I need to give me meaning. It's the only thing that I need to make me feel uh, a sense of self-worth in my life. That thing is your real God. It's an idol, and you're worshiping that idol. It's an idol. And the Bible says that thing that, worship, that you're worshiping, is a th- it, it controls your life. Your idol is a thing that you find ultimate satisfaction in. You're going to be, if you find ultimate satisfaction in something, you're going to do whatever it takes. You're going to sacrifice all the time you've got, most of your money, your whole life. The fear of losing that thing is going to devastate you. There are people here just miserable in their jobs, miserable in their careers, miserable in their workplace, right? They're, they're incredibly miserable. That's emotions. Work makes them unhappy. That's emotions. And so what it, they're pouring all their time, their best hours, all their labor, all their faculties. That's the will, right? All they think about when they get home is they think about tomorrow. They think they're strategizing about their job. It's controlled their mind. That's their mind, right? What are they doing? Your emotions, your will, your mind captivated by this one thing. You're worshiping that thing. Your true God, then, is your career. Your true God is what controls you. So if something happens to your career, you've worked, you poured your time, you've poured your effort, you've poured your thought process, you're constantly thinking. That's all you do when you take a break. You're thinking, you're thinking, you're thinking. You can't get your mind off of whatever, whatever you have to do the next day, the next email that you've got to send, the next time you've got to log in, you know, sign in and, and do the work that you've got to do, the next, the, the, whether or not you're double-checking and triple-checking the the values that you've placed in your spreadsheet and you're working it through, the model that you're building, you're stressing out, it's controlling your will, your emotions, your mind, everything, your happiness, your family becomes negotiable, your friends become negotiable, church becomes negotiable, giving to other people becomes negotiable, a sacrificial life becomes negotiable because you have sacrificed your life for this thing. When your career gets damaged, you become devastated, absolutely devastated. You lose yourself. The psalmist here says, he is the great king above all God. He is our maker, and we are the flock under his care. God will never overwork you. God cares for you. He is good to you. We belong to him. We are his. 
All the other gods in our lives, they work us to death. You got to pay a price. But only when God's love is more satisfying, more valuable than anything else in your life can you rest, can you really rest. That's why we worship God. So we talked about what worship is, ascribing ultimate value or worth to something that will increase your potential and freedom and joy and power and love. And you say, I see your worth in my life and I bow down. And we see why we worship God because God will never overwork you. All other gods will work you to the ground, to your death, to the grave. God says, I will never overwork you. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, come to me and rest. That's God. That's why we worship God. Because he is the great king, but because he is above all other gods. Lastly, how do we worship then? There are two things. One, we worship in community. Notice the psalmist. He says, let us sing. Let us shout aloud. Let, he is the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. For he is our God. We are his people. We are the flock under his care. Yes, Christianity is a personal experience, but you never fully experience the power. You never fully experience the joy or the assurance of being in Christ, being in the Father, being a part of his flock, unless you're in the context of his community. Plug into the church. Get into a community group. Start there and plug into the church. But even if you worship in the context of community, It won't truly be worship outside of resting in him. What does that mean, to rest in Christ, to rest in God, to rest in the Father? Verses 7 to 11, the psalmist writes, Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. Meribah means quarreling, arguing. As you did that day at Massa. Massa means testing in the wilderness. He says, there in Massa, you tested me. There in Meribah, you quarreled with me. Don't harden your hearts like you did back then. The writer, he's referring to a time when the Israelites, actually it goes all the way back to the second book in the Old Testament, second book in the Bible, uh, Exodus. Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites, they were very rebellious. They were quarreling with God. They were wandering in the desert for 40 years. They were, they were rescued out of Egypt, and they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And they actually, they started to turn to worship false gods because their hearts were hardening. So here they are, they're spiritually wandering. They're physically wandering, but they're spiritually wandering, spiritually distant from God. And in their distance from God, they start to look to other gods. They start to look to other gods like food. Some of us have that problem. We say they worship food. They literally said, it was better for me to be back in Egypt as a slave because at least I had better food. That's what they said. There's nothing here. A desert has nothing. It's barren. It's dry. It's a wasteland. It's cold at night and hot during the day, and there's no life in the desert. They said, this is my life. I have no life here on earth. It was better when I was a slave because at least I ate what I wanted. That's what they said. And so they were quarreling with God. And they looked to other gods, worshipped false gods because they had hard hearts. The psalmist in Psalm 95, he ends here. And he says, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Why does the psalm, you know, verses 1 through 7, beautiful. Beautiful discourse on the character of God, calling us to worship God, why we should worship God, and all the different dimensions of worship. Why does he end with this kind of like 
he puts a bad taste in our mouths here. He ends his joyful song of worship with this. And it's pretty confusing. Until you get to Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews writes, For as Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one would fall by following their example. There's an Exodus 17 example of disobedience. The psalmist is warning us not to miss out on God's rest. Even after Joshua took God's people into the promised land, he says, don't miss out on God's rest. Since the physical example points to a deeper spiritual example. And a physical rest, you know, we worship, we physically rest. That's a rest from physical work. What he's saying is there must be a spiritual rest that allows you to rest from your spiritual work. What does that mean? Religion says this. If you're just religious, what you're saying is, if I just live a good life, if I just do good deeds all my life, then God will let me enter his rest. I'm going to be acceptable to him. I'm going to be satisfied because God will accept me. But if you live like that, think about this. If you live like that, I'm just going to live a good life, do good deeds all my life, you're going to be tired because you'll never know where you really stand. And you're going to be working and you're going to be tired and you're going to be beating yourself up and you're going to end up beating other people up because they're not doing those things. And so you're going to become angry. And if they get promoted, if they, get, if they have a better reputation, you say, but I know who these people are and I can't believe that, that people like this person more than me, then you're going to become bitter and you're going to become rejecting and you're going to feel abandoned. We all go through that. We all go through that. A vital faith in the gospel says that you can only rest not because of anything you did or did not do, not because of anything that you earned or did not earn, but only through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Wrap your arms around this. In Matthew, Jesus actually says this. He says, come to me if you're weary. Come to me if you're heavy laden. I will give you rest. How does he do that? How does God give us rest? The psalmist here, he references Jesus. He says, the rock of our salvation. He's calling Jesus his savior. He says, the sea is his. The sea is his. He controls the seas. What do you see? Jesus, he's walking on the water. Jesus calms the seas. He controls the seas. In Matthew chapter 7, at the tail end, it's the the most famous teachings of Christ The Sermon on the Mount, the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only he he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Why is he saying that? It's very harsh. Why is he saying that? People are calling him Lord. They're reasoning him. They say, you know, you are my king. They're, they're ascribing lordship to Christ. They're reasoning with him. They're confessing with, to him. They're worshiping him with their mind. They say, Lord, Lord. Anytime you see the doublet in the Bible, Lord, Lord, addressing to somebody, that is always meant 
with the intent of emotional language. They're virtually crying. They're saying, Lord, Lord. They're crying out to him. That's emotional language. They say, did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform miracles in your name? That's the act of the will. So they have the posture of worship. They have the emotions involved in worship. They have the thought process of someone who is worshiping. And yet Jesus says, I never knew you. You've never come before my face. I never knew you. He doesn't say, but you didn't do enough. That's not what he says. You didn't think hard enough. You didn't pray enough. That's not what he says. He says, I never knew you. We don't have a relationship. Religion focuses on works. Why? It's so that I can be accepted. I can feel acceptable. I can be known. I can feel assurance so long as I live a good life. They said, we did this, Jesus. We did this. Lord, Lord, we did all these things. Jesus said, I never knew you. Your focus is on your works. And so you can never enter my rest. And as a result, we're paying for that. Even in the church, we're paying for that. We're fatigued. We're tired. We're bitter. We're angry. Christianity, the gospel, is about being known by God. That's why the psalmist is singing. That's why he's shouting aloud. That's why there's thanksgiving. We are the sheep of his pasture. He is a great God, and we are his flock. Jesus says what? John chapter 10. We just went through this in our last series. I know my sheep. I call them out by name. This is about a relationship with God. How does it happen? On the cross, what do you see? Jesus on the cross, and he's shouting aloud, isn't he? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because on the cross, the wrath of God was consuming Jesus. The wrath of God, the sum of all the sins are going to be paid for in one instance. And it's being poured out. That punishment that we deserved is pouring out on Christ. And as a result, Jesus is crying out. He's emotional. He says, my God, my God. That doublet is there. He's addressing his father. But notice he doesn't call him my father, my father. He says, my God, my God. I've lost my sonship. And as a result, I'm stripped of my joy. I'm shouting aloud, but there's no joy. I'm trying to enter into the presence of God, and there's no access. I've not entered his courts. I've not entered his gates. I have no access. I've been stripped. He says, you have forsaken me. I cannot see your face. I cannot come before you. It has been rejected. It has been denied. There's emotional language there. My God, my God, there's emotional language. Notice the surrender. Later on he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. I surrender my spirit. There is the will. He's actually reciting word for word Psalm 22. People, scholars say that what he may have been doing on the cross was while he's being tortured, while people are mocking him, while they're torturing him, mocking him, and then here's God who turns his face away and forsakes his son on the cross. He's actually reciting Psalm 22, the whole of it. Because if you read Psalm 22, it starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then as you read through in the Hebrew, as you read through it, you see, I am thirsty. And you see, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he's literally reciting. He's living out Psalm 22. You know what he's doing? That's his mind. He's reciting. 
So you've got the will, you've got the emotions, you've got the mind, and it's all directed to his center of worth, who is the Father. He says, you are my God, and yet you've rejected me. You've forsaken me. I've lost. I've been stripped of my joy. God said to me, away from me, you evildoer. And yet, he's still reciting scripture. He's still processing his life through scripture. He still looks to God and calls him God. Even though he's experiencing suffering. You know, when we suffer, when we are not suffering, we love God. God is great. When it's Christmas time, we love Jesus. We love to worship Jesus on Easter because of what we receive. We love to worship Jesus during Christmas because of the gifts that we receive. We love to worship God during good times in our lives, good seasons in our lives. But when there's suffering, even the smallest ounce of suffering, oh, we cry out. Oh, we shout aloud. But it's not in worship because we've turned inward. We're worshiping ourselves. Jesus, in the peak of his suffering, his whole life was suffering, by the way, but in the peak of his suffering, even though he's suffering, even though God himself has rejected him, he was worshiping on the cross. Why? To be your example? No way. Jesus didn't come all the way here to be your example. He came to be your substitute. Jesus lost the presence of God so that we can come before his face. Jesus was disowned so that we can become owned by God. We can, we can become his. We are his flock. Jesus labored on the cross. Why? So that we can find rest from our works. To the death, Jesus ascribed ultimate value, ultimate worth to God. To the death, he submitted his entire body, his mind, his emotions, his will to the Father. He sacrificed his joy. It was not negotiable. It wasn't like, if you, as long as I have my joy. He did not say that. You know what his joy was? In Isaiah 53, if you read through Isaiah 53, it's a messianic, it's a, it's a prophetic psalm about Jesus. It says that his joy, his joy, that was, that his satisfaction was to see us justified. That was his satisfaction. You know what that means? It's to see us, be, he's envisioning on the cross a picture of this, us coming before God satisfied that satisfied him that was his joy he endured the cross scorning its shame for the joy set before him that's what the author of hebrews says that's why we can rest because we're known by jesus we are his joy we can trust in his character look at his beauty Look at the beauty of Jesus. Look at the holiness of Jesus. Perfect holiness. Look at the righteousness of Jesus. Perfect like righteousness. Look at the love of Jesus. Perfect love. Look at the grace of Jesus. Perfect grace. Look at the work of Jesus. Perfect love. Perfect work. And when he said, it is finished, he said, it's over now. I did it. It's done. Now, you can rest. You can rest. The psalmist is saying, when that truth blows you away, you're going to stop working to earn God's favor because you're going to get it. You're just going to worship God. Repentance is not just turning away, turning your attention away from things, from other things that are like your worth. 
You know, it's not just that. What you're saying is you're also turning to Christ and you're saying, I get it now. You're my source. You're my worth. You're my means of worth. You are the center of my worth. You are my joy, and I am thankful. I'm going to love you because of your great love for me. It's all I need. I'm I'm completely sufficient. You know the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul had a reputation. He was wealthy. He had everything going for it in his life until he became a Christian. Once he became a Christian, all you see is a life of suffering. And it's one of his last books, Philippians chapter 4. A lot of people say, scholars say it's perhaps his last book that he had written. At the end of his life, you know what he says? I've learned what it means to be content, to be satisfied in Christ. That's where, you know, one of the most famous verses that gets taken out of context, I can do all things through him who strengthens me because he is all I need. Adore him. Will you adore him this week? Reflect on him. Will you reflect on him this week? Make him the center of your life. That's the will. Will you do that? Will you make him the center of your life? You've got this, it's more than a lottery ticket. This world, we're just on this ball of rock, and it's hurtling thousands of kilometers per second. One day, it stops, and when it stops, everything falls apart. You think your wealth is going to save you? You think having children is going to save you? You think being married is going to save you? It may feel that way. That's the ruse. There's only one. This, this hole is going to open up one day, and we're all just going to fall right through. Only one thing is going to save you. Only one thing. It's not just going to save you. He's going to lift you up and give you peace now. And give you shelter now. And give you joy now. And satisfaction now. Will you submit to that? Let's pray.